If we haven't met before, my name is Ashley, and I'm the senior pastor here, and we're talking about living a deeply formed life of rhythms and relationships that are rooted in the ways of Jesus. We're talking about rerouting our roots from culture to our new life in Him. Jesus came so that we could have life and have it abundantly. Today's message is called Restoring Balance to Your Life. Anybody need a little balance in their life today? Feel like maybe you're running a bit of a rat race? Jesus wants to give us the best life. There's so many aspects to life, and God wants us to trust him with every single part. We tend to compartmentalize, and we say, this is my church part, and this is my work part, and this is my family part. But to God, there's not all these compartments. We are one whole being in him, and it all matters. Last week, we looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're going to start there again today. It says, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, which is your whole life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Embrace what he has done. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you, which is simply to embrace what he's done and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Come on. So placing our life as an offering, yeah. What does that mean? It means orienting our whole life around God, around what matters for eternity instead of what is temporary. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because God loves us first. He loved us before we were born. And he loves us so much, he sent his son Jesus so that we could have a relationship with him. And we simply live our lives responding to his love. In John 15, 1, Jesus says, I'm the real vine and my father is the farmer Live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. So I love this illustration. Jesus is talking to us about being in a vineyard, which we can all understand being in upstate New York. And he's saying, I'm the real vine. Because in the Old Testament, Israel was a type of vine that was entrusted to share the knowledge of God with the world. And they didn't do that, which we wouldn't do it if we were in their place either. So we're not down on them. Jesus says, I'm the real vine, and, my, and God, my Father, is the farmer. He says, make your home in me. What's home like? It's safe. It's where you're loved. It's where you're free to be yourself. Jesus says, make your home in me as I make my home in you. Because when we trust him, he makes his home in our hearts. He's in you, and you are in him. You're connected. You are one. Next verse, he says, In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you're joined with me. So if you think about a branch and a vine, when a branch is not connected to a vine, it's like lying on the ground. It shrivels up and it dies. It has no source. It has nothing to sustain it. And farmers take those broken branches and they graft them onto the vine. And through that connection, the branches become healthy again. In the same way, we were dead in our sin, the Bible says, until our relationship with Jesus. And when we trust in him, we're grafted onto his vine, and he becomes the source of our life. Broken grape branches become whole and healed when they're connected to the vine. So do broken people as we source from Jesus. Verse 5 says, I'm the vine.
are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, when we're one plant, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. This is how my Father shows who he is. When you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. The intimate and organic. Jesus has an organic grape farm. No, he's saying he wants us to have a relationship, not a religion with him. So everything we need to have a fruitful life is found in him. We produce fruit when we're connected to him. We don't drum up this fruit within ourselves. Either you're connected to Jesus because you've believed in him by faith, or you're not connected yet because you haven't believed. That's it. There's connected or not connected. There's not more or less connected. There's just all in or all out. It's like my relationship with my kids. They are completely my kids, no matter what. They can't do anything more to be my kids or anything less to be my kids. They can't mess up so bad or be so amazing that it impacts our relationship. They're my kids. We don't need to try to be more connected to Jesus. That's religion. We need to trust in the relationship that we already have and let him transform us from the inside out. In the same way that grapes come on, in the same way that a branch bears grapes from its connection to the vine, we bear fruit from our connection to Jesus. The branch doesn't have to work hard to bear fruit. It doesn't strive. It doesn't try like, I'm just really going to produce some grapes today. No, it sources from the vine. That's it. So apart from Jesus, if we're trusting in ourselves and our own efforts instead of making our home in him, we can't bear fruit. We don't have the source within us, but he is our source. Galatians 5.16 says, My counsel is this, live freely, animated, and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness, for there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that's at odd with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. So he's saying, is your root in your old nature? Is your root in your old self and your righteousness? Or are you feeding off of the vine, not off the root of self-interest, but off of Jesus and his righteousness? He's saying, let go of self-righteousness. It's opposed to your freedom in Jesus. Trust in his righteousness. Let your roots grow into Jesus. Let your life be led by his spirit. Trust him instead of trying to produce fruit. The next verse says, Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? And all that means there is trying to be good enough. Verse 22, But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. So he's saying when you're connected to Jesus, your life produces fruit through his spirit. It's called the fruits of the spirit in other translation. Um, and we, we say live connected to Jesus. Choose to let the Holy Spirit within you lead you instead of your old self. That's when your life bears fruit. Instead of trusting in legalism and doing your own thing apart from him, trust in Jesus. Receive his joy. We have joy because we get it from Jesus. Jesus. 
We have peace because we get it from him. We have patience because he is our source. We love because he loves us. He's our supplier. He says, I am the vine. You're the fruit bearing part. You're not the supplier. You're not the producer. You're not the one responsible. I'm the one responsible. Your part is to let the fruit grow. When we trust in Jesus, we are joined to him. We source from him. We get all that we need from him. And he and I and he and you, we are one. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. The word there, united, means planted together. We are planted together with Jesus. We are one plant together with him. And because he has right standing with God, we have right standing with God. We're one. Because he's pure and holy, we're pure and holy. We're one. Because he's free from sin, we are free from sin. Free indeed. Come on. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Anybody need rest in here today? Come on. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says, are you tired and weary and burnt out on being good enough? Come to me, and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. And he's talking to people there who understand farm imagery. Basically, he's talking about an ox yoke and how two oxen are yoked together. There's one that's like the mature one that knows exactly what to do. And then there's a younger one who's still learning from the other ox. And he says, you know, I'm the one who's going to bear all the weight on the big ox. Here, take on the yoke with me. Let's stay connected. Just like we were talking about earlier with the vine. Connected through the yoke. He says, work with me and I'll show you a better way to work. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, if you need rest, yoke up to me. Which is so funny because of all the things he could have used, he didn't say, take my mattress and go lie down. Or take a credit card and go on vacation because you deserve it. No, he said, take my work instrument and learn to carry your life the way that I carry life. Learn from me. Adopt my lifestyle. What was his lifestyle like? He had a lifestyle of love. He spent lots of time with people. People were the most important thing to him. He spent lots of time with God. He served people, and he worked hard, and he worshiped God, and he took a Sabbath rest every week. He, he allowed himself to be interrupted all the time, and he was never annoyed. He worked at a slow pace. There was a couple times when people came to him and they're like, this person's dying. you got to go help him quick. And Jesus is like, yeah, I will. But because of his slow pace, by the time he got there, they were dead. But that's okay. Jesus is like, I'll just heal them. No problem. Most of us are too busy to follow Jesus. We're too busy to live like he lived. Too busy to live unhurried. Too busy to spend time with him. To spend time with people that we care about. Too busy to focus on the things that last for eternity because we're caught up in the day-to-day. Did you know that before Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, we would sleep 11 hours a night? That's crazy. If my kids sleep 11 hours, I make sure they're breathing. Like, are you okay in there? I've never slept 11 hours. Now we get an average of seven. We're too busy to sleep. With the invention of the cell phone, we have an average attention span of eight seconds. Yeah. 
To put it in perspective, the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. We are too busy to focus. We touch our phones 2,617 times a day. You ever just have that feeling where your pocket's buzzing, but it's actually not because we're just so used to our phones? If you have an iPhone, you can look at your settings and see, how much time do I spend on my phone every day? We're too busy to enjoy life. We fill our lives to the max because we're searching for self-worth. We're searching for love, for acceptance. We're looking to productivity to heal our childhood wounds. We're looking to productivity to help our fear of failure and our unwillingness to accept our humanity. The solutions to these problems isn't found in busyness. It's found in Jesus. Busyness is a symptom. Come on. Jesus helps us get to the root. So we take our roots out of busyness and we're rerouting them in Jesus and his rhythms. We're rerouting them from a culture that's crushing our souls to the source of life in Jesus. We're learning to be emotionally healthy and spiritually satisfying lives. We're learning to stop settling for mediocre faith and pursue faith that fuels every part of us. We're learning to live like Jesus. If you look at Jesus, the busier he got, the more he made space to pray. He was like, I'm too busy not to pray. Mark 6, 31, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. They're like, Jesus, we did so many amazing things. Come on, look at all this cool stuff. Verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Come with me and get some rests. You've been working and earning and proving yourself. Come with me and get some rest. When we're busy, we tend to do the opposite. We think, Jesus loves me. God understands. I'm too busy to spend time with him today. And he does understand, and he does love us unconditionally. But when we don't spend time with him, we're not sourcing from his supply. We have access to it, but we're not choosing to receive it. He's still supplying it, but we're choosing to do things in our own power. And when we do that, we're limiting ourselves. We're limiting our productivity. We're stealing the opportunity for peace from ourselves. We're putting a lid on our joy. If we take just one of Jesus's ways and put it into practice in our lives, it will change our whole life. If you think about the Sabbath, which we talked about last week, science shows that it benefits us. They did a study of all the different religions, and they found that Seventh-day Adventists, they live the longest of any religion. And what they do, they have the Sabbath at the heart of everything they believe. They orient their life around that. They don't skip it, and on average, they live 10 years longer than the rest of us. 10 years! If you add up a lifetime of Sabbaths, it adds up to 10 years of time. Because everything that you give to God, everything you surrender to Him, he gives back to you. And we think, oh, that's too simple. I need to do something. I need to produce. I need to have a personal day. I need to veg. I need to watch a movie. I need to go to the spa. I need to grab a beer. When in reality, our soul needs time with Jesus. And it's so simple, but we make it so complicated. And I know we agree with that logically. We're like, yes, that's a great idea. But in practice, we tend to think, I'll have time for all that rhythm stuff when I graduate. Or I'll have time when I get promoted. Or once I'm married, I'll definitely have time then. Or after the kids grow up. Or when I'm retired. 
But it's a lie to say that if I was in another season of life, I can make God more of a priority. You can thrive in this season. Branches stay connected to the vine every season. Spring, summer, fall, winter. They remain connected. Embrace the season that you're in. If you're around small children every day, that means that you can learn about being a child of God from them. If you're married, it's one of the best places to learn unconditional love and grace that isn't deserved and isn't earned. If you're single, you learn how to source from God as your main relationship. You can't make more time in this season, but you can be wise with the time that you have. Psalm 90.12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. When you're aware of your season, you can be wise with your moments. When you're aware of your season, you can be wise with your moments. And one tool that helps us to abide in Jesus that I want to introduce to you today, that helps us keep him at the center of our lives, that helps us stay connected to him according to our season, it's called a rule of life. And this is something that the monks practice. So, you know, people who worship God all the time and give up their whole life to follow God, this is one practice that they take. And it's not something explicitly laid out in the Bible, but it's like if you look at a Bible reading plan. The Bible doesn't say, read a Bible reading plan every day. No, that's one framework that helps us. This is another framework that can benefit us if we'll implement it. It's an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything. It's a pattern of attitudes, behaviors, and realistic rhythms that help us orient our lives around Jesus. It involves pre-deciding what's important to us so we can say yes to the best things and no to the other things. It enables us to say yes to being transformed by Jesus every day. 1 Corinthians 7.35 says, all I want is for you to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with the master without a lot of distractions. This is a framework that helps us to align our schedule with our values and arrange our lives around what our hearts want most. And the word rule, it sounds religious, but it's really from the Greek word that's the same word as trellis. So a trellis is something that you put plants on to help them grow up. And if you think of us as the grape branches, without that trellis, we're limited. We can only grow so far. So a rule of life is the trellis that helps make abiding in Jesus our number one priority. It's a discipline that helps us to be intentional with our lives. Because life is not about arriving. We never actually arrive. It's about growing and producing fruit. And we can be intentional with our growth, or we can just let life happen to us. It's about having a satisfied soul being who God made us to be on purpose, doing what he created us to do that no one else can do. It's about living a full and fulfilled existence and not getting to the end of our lives and being like, man, I missed it. To do that, we embrace and acknowledge the gift of our limitations. We embrace the fact that we're human, that we need to sleep, that we only have 24 hours in a day, that we're not God while at the same time creating space for the God of the impossible to do what we cannot as we remain in him. It's like growing a plant in your house. You pick out a planter, you purchase the right soil, you figure out the watering schedule, and you put it in the best location for light. And this helps your plant to grow strong. You're intentional, intentional about your plant's growth. Why would we not be intentional about our growth? When your plant when your plant is three months old compared to three years old, it needs different things. It's going to need more water, more soil, a larger planter, 
for your plant to flourish, you want to create a new plan, one for now and one that you adapt in the future. And in the same way, the rule of life is based on the season that you're in, and it will look different in the other seasons. And it will look different from the person seated next to you, and it will serve you in your season. So instead of defaulting to worry, it helps us to seek God first in every season. Matthew 6.25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He says, seek God first, and he'll provide the other things. He says, seek first his righteousness. That's righteousness that comes from Jesus. He says, seek first his kingdom. And the kingdom of God is a state of being where God is reigning in our lives and his presence is shaping our reality because of the righteousness of Jesus. And as we remain connected to the vine, we choose to structure our lives through the trellis, through the rule of life. We make plans for every other area of our life, for our vacations, for our workout routine, for our meals, eating, sleeping, going to work, walking around life. A rule of life is a framework for our whole life. It's accountability for what you want your life to look like, and it's split into four main categories, and we're going to put those on the screens for you as we go through this. They're also on your note sheet. They're rest, work, relationships, and prayer. And like we talked about last week, rest is a gift from God. We don't rest when our work is done, because our work is never done. We rest every seventh day because it's time to rest. Not because we earn it or deserve it, but because we trust God. A day of rest is an act of faith. Rest is trusting God to rule the universe without you. I know it's crazy. You can trust him to do it without you. It's a day to enjoy God's gifts, his creation, your family, your stuff, food, and enjoy God. It's a day of rest and worship. And if you didn't get to listen to it last week, you can check it out on our website, nyhopechurch.com. It's really foundational to this talk. I hope that if you were here last week, you were able to put into practice some form of a Sabbath this week. Your rule of life will help you to be consistent in that choice. So in the rest category on your note sheet, you're going to write what replenishes and fuels you. Might be the Sabbath. Rest, what replenishes and fuels me? What brings me joy and delight? How do I worship? What do I do for fun? I was listening to a podcast the other week, and they were talking about how throughout the pandemic, a lot of America really struggled because we didn't have hobbies. It's crazy, but hobbies can be life-giving. A lot of us don't have an outlet. We don't have activities that breathe life into us, but successful people choose to have hobbies that fuel them. Maybe it's taking up martial arts or dancing or making model airplanes or gardening or painting or kayaking or hiking, something that you do regularly. Get a hobby. Add it to your rule of life. And then in this category, what do you do to care for your body? What choices do you make about diet and exercise and sleep? For me, and my rule of life is going to look different from everybody else's, just like yours is different from the person next to you. Uh, in the rest category, I have my family Sabbaths from Friday night to Saturday night. That works best for us, and we worship and rest in that time. I try to get eight hours of sleep per night on most nights because I need at least eight. I want to exercise three times a week, 
I don't yet. Um, when we moved into our current house five years ago, we stored our elliptical in my husband's uncle's barn over the winter, and a cat died and froze to it. <laughs> yeah. And my husband threw it away. I'm like, I would scrape the cat off <laughs> so I could have my elliptical. <laughs> So anyway, I haven't made this one happen yet, but I know this is an area I want to grow in, exercise. And then on my rule of life, we have one family experience a week. Our kids are little, they're five and seven. So we try to be intentional about going to the park one day or going out to eat, going swimming, to the movies, mini golf, hiking, game night, you know, anything like that. And then my hobby is reading. So reading one personal book a month because I tend to read a lot of things for church. So that's the rest category. Let's talk about work. Remember from last week, work is serving people, it's worshiping God, and it's harnessing the world's potential. When God created us, he said, be fruitful and subdue the earth. Work it and care for it. We each have potential that God placed inside of us. We have gifts, talents, passions, and the world is better when we embrace who he made us to be. So work is what fuels our purpose. So in the work category, the question is, how can I serve people, worship God, and draw out the potential of the world around me? And we have it up on the screen for you. How can I serve people, worship God, and pull out the potential of the world around me? So for my work uh, rule of life, for me that means being mentored monthly. I'm part of an organization called Propel Ecclesia, and I have a mentor. It's a six-month program, um, Christine Kane's organization. And um, I'm, I'm really excited. Tomorrow, my husband and I are actually flying out to California. I get to meet my mentor in person. Yeah. Up until now, we've been talking over Zoom. So for you, I don't know what that looks like in your field, but finding a mentor, finding someone who's gone further than you and who can pour into you and invest in you. Um, let's see, what else? Making hope the best place to work. That's important to me. Uh, so I take the team to conferences. We have monthly team-building events. We do a whole life check-in where they say where they're at in 10 different categories of um, personal health. And we do a weekly book discussion and just other things for growth. Um, also in my work, I want to make hope the best place to lead. So uh, on my goals is to do more leadership trainings and uh, write up Leadership 101 so we can bring more leaders and pull out the gifts and cultivate the gifts in people as they serve Jesus. Also on my list is making hope the best place to volunteer. I think it already is, but I know there are some things that we can do to keep growing too. Uh, so we have power-ups on Sunday mornings just for volunteers. We had an amazing time this morning from 8.15 to 8.30. We have impact nights. We've got one coming up in September. Come on. And really, our teams are just a place where, again, what God has put within us is pulled out and developed and, um, you know, where God changes our mindsets and helps us to grow. And then the last part of my work thing is um, making hope the best place to bring your family. So uh, rewriting Hope 101, and we're going to be doing some fall family nights, and I'm going to tell you about that next week, hopefully. So what does work look like in your field, in your realm? How can you grow? You know, what are your goals beyond clocking in and clocking out, getting through the week? How do you want to make an impact in the world around you? Because you are not just placed on this earth to get through life. You are placed on the earth because God has a purpose and a plan for you. And it's a good plan. And he wants to use you to change your world. And yes, even staying at home with the kids is a career. 
So in that work category, that counts you too. If you're retired, that's your work. What can you do to serve people, worship God, and draw out the potential of the world around you? So that's work. The next category is relationships. And we're going to talk about these more in the coming weeks. But for relationships, we ask ourselves, what do I want my relationships with people to be like? So relationships with yourself, your family, your friends, relationships at church. What do I want my relationships with people to be like? This is how you choose to open up your life to people, to be vulnerable, and to experience a richer life. So for me, that looks like no phone when I'm with my family or when I'm talking to people, being present in the moment. And it seems silly that I have to write that down, but it's something that holds me accountable. Um, For me, it looks like my husband and I connect daily at 8.30 p.m. just to talk about our day after the kids go to bed and then having a date night twice a month, one that I choose and one that he chooses. With our kids, it looks like being home with dinner ready by 6 p.m. each night so that we can invest in them until their bedtime at 8. Because as I sat down to think about it, I'm like, wow, when school's going on and work's going on, we have two hours a night if I make it home by then to make their lives matter, to make these moments matter while they're in our care and our stewardship. So that helps me to say, I'm leaving work at 5 so I can be home by 6 and cooking dinner. And for you, you know, depending on what time you leave work, it might look different. Uh, For church, I want to have dinner with a family in the church at least once a month. I want to get to know everybody. I love hearing people's stories. Uh, For our staff, we have team lunches every day. So we choose not to work through lunch, but we choose to say, stop, everybody, stop work. We're going to relate as we eat our lunch together. And then for peers, I connect once a week with Pastor Henry in Uganda and Pastor Hannah in Ithaca. So those are all my relationships. The last category is prayer. And this category is all about our relationship with God. And we're going to talk about this one more in the coming weeks too. But prayer, what do I want my relationship with God to be like? Reading his word because he speaks to us through it. Prayer, spending time talking to God. You know, 75% of us sleep next to our phones. I do. 90% of us check them when we wake up. What if we choose to put our phones away at the same time every night, like in a drawer in the kitchen, and not get it out in the morning, morning until we've connected with God and the people in our house? Practicing silence and solitude. You know, our gut is to grab our phones in moments of silence. 77% of us grab our phone when we don't have anything to do rather than just embracing silence. If we're like in line at the doctor's office or at the store or just sitting in our car, we're like, "Uh, I'm bored, I'm bored, I don't know what to do, phone. (laughs) But we want to embrace the silence and bring God into our moments. I was with our team at Six Flags earlier this year and they love riding roller coasters, so they were riding them a ton and I was sitting a ton because I don't. I was like the mom of the group with everybody's stuff. And as I was sitting there, in the past, I would have been scrolling my phone, like, what else do you do? But I was so excited to just, in those moments, be present with God and be like, wow, God, you're so amazing. I love that we're here together as a team. I love that you've created this place. I love how you've made people. I was just enjoying moments with him. And I was so thankful for that time. Where can we enjoy time with him in silence and solitude and let him speak to us? as we just sit in his presence. 
and also choosing to be fueled and fulfilled in those moments with God instead of filling those moments with scrolling. So my rule of life with prayer looks like coffee and Bible to start the day. It looks like Monday prayer with our staff. It looks like worshiping God on the drive into work for an hour, because that's my drive. Uh, it looks like reading a book on Audible a week for development on the drive home hour. It looks like monthly couples counseling checkup my husband and I do uh, with a counselor in Williamsport. Allow your rule to be developed over time. What works for you? Craft your rule of life. Let God direct your steps. Submit your plans to him because his plans are the best. We want to seek first his kingdom, God reigning in our lives with his presence reshaping our reality and everything else added. This helps us to put God first. Jesus describes the kingdom of God in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure a man discovered in a field. In his excitement, he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field and get the treasure too. Traditionally, we interpret this parable as the kingdom of heaven is the treasure and we want to orient our lives to reflect that. Verse 45, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl like a pearl merchant on the lookout for great poor, choice pearls, he discovered a real bargain, a pearl of great value, and sold everything he owned to purchase it. Does this mean that God wants us to sell everything? No. Don't just be weird and quit everything for shock value. We can't purchase the kingdom of God. Jesus already did that. This means that the kingdom of God is here now, and embracing it makes our lives different than they were before. The more we lose our lives... The more we surrender our lives to him, the more we find them because he helps us to be who he made us to be. So instead of being consumed by our own desires, where our life is about our eating, drinking, going to work, surviving the day life, we exchange that for a better life, the real life that Jesus offers in a relationship with him. Our relationship with him is worth our entire lives. The more we get to know his goodness, the more we want to surrender every part to him. If you feel like, I don't want to surrender, just get to know his goodness. He transforms us. So all of that is one interpretation of Matthew 13, but I don't think it's the main meaning because we love God because he loved us first. So let's look at it again through the lens of God to us. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure a man discovered in a field. In his excitement, he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field and get the treasure too. In God's eyes, people are a treasure. The Bible says it over and over. The field is the world. Jesus explains this in other places. Jesus gave up all he had in heaven to purchase our freedom at the cross. We are the treasure. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. That's us. He discovered a real bargain, a pearl of great value. That's you. And he sold everything he owned to purchase it. Jesus is the merchant who sold all he had to purchase your salvation. In his eyes, you are of great price. You are the apple of his eye. God said he would give up all of creation just for you. He gave up his son, Jesus, to redeem us. It's the greatest demonstration of love in all of history because you are a treasure. You are valuable. He loves you and you don't have to do anything to earn or deserve that love. You receive it by trusting in Jesus.
Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is in the midst of you. It started when he came to earth. It's available through the person of the king. It's your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. He says we receive it like a child. Our last section of verses, Matthew 22, Jesus says, God's kingdom is like a king who threw a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out servants to call in all the invited guests, and they wouldn't come. The kingdom of heaven is like a party. This is why we say church is meant to be enjoyed, not endured. God is not boring. He compares his kingdom to a wedding banquet, a place of celebration, of food, of dancing. That's our Father's heart. So his kingdom is like a king who threw a wedding banquet for his son. God is the king, Jesus is the son, and the Jewish people are the invited guests who wouldn't come. Verse 4, he sent on another round of servants instructing them to tell the guests, look, everything's on the table. The prime rib is ready for carving. Come to the feast. They only shrugged their shoulders and went off, one to weed his garden, another to work in his shop. The people were too busy to enjoy the party. Sound familiar? Too busy trying to live up to the standard of the law, the law that God gave because they said they could do everything God asked them to do, an impossible task rooted in their pride and self-righteousness. They were too busy trying to be good enough to respond to God's invitation. Too busy working on their righteous acts. The Bible says all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags anyway. We talked about that last series, filthy rags in the Bible. It's translated as dirty women's menstrual cloths. It's nasty. But we keep trying to work on our righteousness. We're too busy to respond to God's gift of rest. We say things like, that's nice, I'll rest when I'm dead. And we laugh, I'll rest when I figure out my purpose, I'll rest after my work is done, but it'll never be done. This is a choice to respond to God's invitation in our lives. Verse eight, he told his servants, we have a wedding banquet all prepared, but no guests. The ones I invited weren't up to it. Go out into the busiest intersections in town, invite anyone you find to the banquet. The servants went out on the streets and rounded up everyone they laid eyes on, good and bad, regardless. And so the banquet was on, every place filled. Those who were invited originally were too busy, so the king invited everyone. The Jewish people were too busy, so God invited the Gentiles, everyone who wasn't a Jew. Good and bad people. Because it's not about what you do, it's about responding to the invitation from the king. So God's like, I want you to invite everyone. I want Sharon to come. I want Steve to come. I want the workaholic dad to come. I want the teen who self-harms to come. I want the mom who doesn't think she's enough to come. I want the porn addict to come. I want the ones who are hurting and the ones who have it all together. I want both. Tell them they're invited. This party's for everyone. I want them to know that they have a special place. I want them to come because it's a special day. Verse 10, the servants did and brought in all they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the wedding robe provided for him. Friend, he asked, how does it happen you're here without a wedding robe? The man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind him hand and foot and throw him out in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This part of the story always bothered me. Like, God, are you concerned with how we look? Are you worried about fashion? No. 
The text says the man wasn't wearing the robe provided for him. He rejected it. He was wearing the filthy rags of self-righteousness, which aren't enough to measure up to God's perfect standard. When you trust in Jesus, the Bible says he gives you a garment of salvation, a robe of righteousness. It's given to you. It's his blood covering the places that you fall short, satisfying the penalty of the law for all of our sins. Unrighteous people can't be in the presence of our holy God without the provided robe. The kingdom of heaven is received by trusting in Jesus for our righteousness, by responding to God's invitation for salvation. When you trust in Jesus and you're connected to the vine, God doesn't reject you. He loves you. He transforms you from the inside out. 